Welcome to SuccessfulSavior.org, the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church in Donaldson, Arkansas. This is Elder Dan Sammons preaching in our regular Sunday morning service. I appreciate that prayer. I do ask that you continue to pray for me as we go through this service. I feel like my thoughts are pretty divided today. I'm having a little clarity of thought issue in my head, so I pray the Lord will give me some clarity of thought and expression as we go forward. I do want to pick up in 2 Timothy. We started in that the last time I stood before you. 2 Timothy chapter 1, we've been going through the pastoral epistles and we finished 1 Timothy a, a little while back and started in 2 Timothy. And we got down to verses 9 and 10 and I'll kind of pick up the text there. Those are some battleground texts in the uh, Christian faith and ones that we like to hang out on a lot. So it's important that we understand them. I made the comment last time that if you're going to understand something about the salvation that's taught in the Bible, there's three principles taught in verse 9 and verse 10 that if you can get a handle on these, you will have traveled a fairly good distance down the road of starting to understand what the Bible says about grace. And those three things are saved, called, and not of works. If you can get a handle on the fact that the eternal salvation taught in the Bible has to do with God doing some saving, God doing some calling, and that salvation is not of works, it doesn't have anything to do with something you did, you're going to have moved a long way down the road towards understanding that salvation is by the grace of God, not by the merit of man. That is one of the big dividing points among a lot of Christians. And I would say many Christians, if you look at their doctrine, you're going to find that they have some measure of works mixed in with their formula for salvation. So there's some element of something you had to do. And it's been well said among our people that the thing that distinguishes the Old Baptist from a lot of others is that things that people say are the requirements of eternal salvation we say are the evidences of eternal salvation. So you see that someone wants to repent and wants to join the church or wants to love God and wants to serve God. These are not things you did as a prerequisite to get into eternal salvation, but they are rather the evidences of an eternal salvation already imparted to you, which is why you would ever have that desire to want to do those things anyway. So it's not as though having to learn or know this truth is something that makes it that you are born again. Rather, it's that if you can come and be instructed in the Word of God, that's an evidence that you were born again because you had the ears to hear and you could receive this teaching. I suspect, in fact, I'm certain, I'll say this, I'm certain that people are born of God's Spirit in this world and they don't immediately understand these truths. Being born again does not immediately place in your mind a perfect and orthodox and biblical understanding of the work that Christ did on your behalf. It just does not do that. It does, however, give you a spiritual mind where you can look at the Bible and say, this is the Word of God. I need to believe about salvation what the Bible teaches about salvation. I need to set aside my preconceived notions of how I think salvation ought to work as the idol of the mind that it is and say, let's see what God's Word says about it and that's what I ought to believe. People learn this in discipleship. They don't learn it through regeneration. You see what I'm saying? That's why a lot of your friends and neighbors who don't really understand this thing, they haven't been taught that in discipleship. They could learn it. They could profit tremendously from it if they would embrace it. So verse 9 starts with saying, Who hath saved us? 
That's talking about something that's already happened, right? Jesus Christ actually got it done at Calvary. That's why he would say, He hath saved His people, right? Amen. Do all of them know that and understand that? No, they don't. But He hath done it, whether they know it and understand it or not. You see what I'm saying? He hath saved us and called us with an holy calling. That is not the gospel calling, right? None of those Old Testament saints heard the explicit New Testament gospel. That's the greatest proof of all that this calling is not talking about hearing the gospel in the New Testament sense. It's talking about God calling out and imparting unto you life with a creative fiat where he says, that's one of mine that was chosen in election. He speaks life unto you. And gives you the capacity then to do spiritual things, to love God, know God, have faith, follow Him in discipleship, etc. That's talking about things that God does. And those two things that God does are part of what all God does in salvation. But He's really focusing in on the saved and called portion here in this part of Scripture. But then He kind of doubles down on that by saying, and it's not of our works, right? You might say, well, He saved and then He called and then I had to do something. Well, if that was the case, then it would have been saved and called, yet it was still according to your works. But he's making it very clear in this declaration that your salvation is not according to your works. Works were not a prerequisite to that. So this is really core to a proper understanding of the gospel. And Paul was very focused on it here. But according to his own purpose and grace, which was given us in Christ Jesus before the world began. God's plan for saving a people predated the existence of humanity. You see that? Amen. And it wasn't a plan that said, I'm going to look out here and try to figure out who's going to do good and who's not going to do good. Because why? Because that would be according to your works. And he says, it's not according to your works. You see that? So God had a plan in eternity past. This is what we mean by election. God had a plan to save out of fallen humanity an elect or chosen people. He chose them for His own glory, for His own purpose, because He set His love upon them, and that's how He wanted to do it. So that's the thing that Paul is teaching here. He's really teaching the doctrine of election again here and really trying to make it very, very clear that it's not based on what you did. It's based on what God did. Verse 10, but is now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death. See, he's already done that for his people. He's already abolished death for them. It's not, well, if you'll do something, then Christ will have abolished death for you. Christ will abolish death for you if you will do something. No, He's already abolished death for His people, right? And this is made manifest. That means it is now revealed. This was always the truth. It was the truth before any of those Old Testament saints ever had any access to anything from God whatsoever. This was God's plan from the beginning before any of us existed. And now through the Scriptures and through the revelation of the New Testament, the writings of Paul, the teachings of Jesus Christ and His apostles and disciples, this is now being explicitly revealed to God's people. Here it is in the Scriptures. We're explaining it very plainly here. Now made manifest by the appearing of our Savior Jesus Christ, who hath abolished death and hath brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. That text is saying the gospel is information. You know, you hear people say gospel means good news. It's a news report. 
And if you're getting news that's quality news, which is something very questionable in our society today, you look at a news report, you better look at it a little sideways and go, I'm not sure I believe what I'm being told here. But if you could think of a newspaper that only publishes the truth and every sentence is nothing but the truth and there's no error in it, there's no color in it, there's no attempt to try to influence you uh, to believe something that's false, there's none of that, it's just nothing but publishing the truth, that's the nature of the gospel. It is a truthful declaration and that's why it's regarded as good news. It's good news for God's people because it's telling them, it's not based on what you did. You're saved by what God did. Amen. And that's the good news story. The gospel is information. You're not saved by embracing information in an eternal sense. Now, you may be saved in your conscience. One of God's children that's regenerate may be out there. They may love God. They don't understand much of anything. Maybe they haven't spent time with the Word of God. They're projecting all kinds of ideas that they've had about salvation onto God. They don't really have any basis other than just their whimsical opinions about things. That person can be saved by hearing the gospel, but not in the sense that they're then given eternal life by that. They're saved in the sense that, wow, I was really confused about what God had done in my life. And now I see what He's taught here about what He's done. I'm the object of His grace. I now have understanding. I'm saved from the ignorance I once possessed regarding my Savior, my God, and the work He did on my behalf. There's a salvation in that sense in knowing the gospel. But the gospel is information. And you're not eternally saved just by coming to hear some information. You may be temporally saved by coming to know the truth and the, and the peace and comfort that that visits into your life, but not in an eternal sense. So the gospel reveals this. It brings life and immortality uh, to light. It exposes it. It shows it. It shines a light on it in a way that nothing else does. And that's the purpose of the gospel. The gospel is light, and that's why it is illuminating to God's people. Picking up in verse 11. Having now established this gospel of grace in those previous two verses, he starts with whereunto, in other words, with regard to this gospel of grace I just told you about, I am appointed a preacher and an apostle and a teacher of the Gentiles. His purpose was to teach this very truth that we just spent a few minutes talking about to other people. That is his purpose in gospel ministry. Well, it's one of many purposes, but that's a core purpose of gospel ministry. You want people to be rooted in this truth that you're saved by what God did, not by what you did. If it was sitting on you, you wouldn't be saved at all. Because you would have had no thought of God, no inclination to serve God, no love of God, or any of those things in your fallen state of nature. But if God has touched your heart, then you can embrace these things. Then you can see the light, so to speak. You can see this, the righteousness of God revealed in the gospel. And Paul is saying this is the purpose for which I was appointed to preach. I'm supposed to be out there teaching the gospel of the grace of Christ. So it's a very important instruction. It's one that, by the way, if you, if you, if you slide off the, the bubble, off of center on this, you've got a real problem. Because now you're missing out on one of the core purposes of gospel ministry. And the world is constantly trying to get gospel ministry out of level. You know, there's always influences that are trying to 
push the gospel in one way or another. Add a little works to it. Add some additional uh, sacraments to it. Add some stuff man's got to do to it. And the moment you do, it's just like taking that level and just giving it a little bit of a tilt. And you know, if you've ever worked with a level, it doesn't take much of a tilt at all before the bubble is not in the center anymore, right? Now think about that as it relates to introducing works into the notion of salvation by grace. You've got it on the level. On the level is there's no works involved in it at all. There's only one way that you can hold that level so that the bubble is right in the center. And the slightest departure from that moves the bubble and you're no longer at level anymore. And it's the same way with the introduction of works into grace. The moment you introduce the slightest works into this thing, you are no longer on the level with grace. It's not level anymore. It's not right. It's wrong. And I think one of the things that uh, bothers people is they might say, well, it's just a little thing we did. It's just, a li- just one little thing we added in there. Okay, yeah, it's a little, but it's not level anymore, is it? I mean, you can, if you've ever hung pictures before, I've done this a lot. If you try to just eyeball it, you know, and maybe you don't get it quite right. It might look okay when you're up close, but then you start backing away from it and you see it relative to the, the roof line and relative to the door jams and everything. And that little bit of tilt to it is like, it's just not going to work. It's got to be level. And a little bit off is enough to be really annoying if you're paying attention to these things. And it's enough to be not level anymore. So that's kind of how, how works uh, poison the truth. Uh, it doesn't take much of any departure before it's out of level. It's not the truth anymore. And Paul was really focused on this. I'll give you a homework assignment. I may turn over there a little later. But in the first chapter of Galatians, he talks about this notion of introducing works into the gospel. And he refers to it as another gospel. It's like once there's only level and then there's not level, right? In the same way, there's only the gospel of grace and then there's the gospel of works. And they are not the same thing. So, It's important that we understand the the centrality of this principle as it relates to gospel ministry. And this was the purpose for which Paul was called. A great portion of what any minister of the gospel is out there trying to do is trying to keep everything on the level. And that means minding the details and things. Verse 12, For the which cause I also suffer these things, nevertheless I am not ashamed. By the way, when you're that much of a stickler for keeping things on the level, keeping the bubble in the center, you're going to encounter a lot of criticism, and a lot of it's going to come from the domain of the religious world, the professing Christian world. Um, And you just kind of have to be ready for that. I, I can find it in my own life in the form of, well, if you weren't such a stickler on that notion, you could probably have twice as many people attending this church. There's lots of churches in the area, and a lot of them have more people in them than our church does. And I don't deny that there's truth to that. There's things we could do in changing what we preach that could alter the number of people who are coming to this church. The only problem is we're not preaching on the level anymore, and we're not preaching the truth. So what we have to do is orient ourselves around the truth and try to bring people to the truth. 
And I'm not ashamed of that declaration. If it means we're going to have 20 people here, or 30, or 40, or 50, instead of 200, 300, 400, then that's the way it has to be. We can't compromise on the principle of grace for the pragmatism of saying, well, we could have more people in here. We just can't do that. We have to stick to it, and we're not ashamed of it. Nor will I be made to feel ashamed of that notion. What I would be ashamed of, in all candor, and I hope I always feel this way, but what I would be ashamed of is the thought that I'm going to modify the gospel of Jesus Christ because I think I could get a few more people in here. That's not a trade-off that any gospel minister should be willing to make. And why was, um, why was Paul in this state of saying, I'm not ashamed of this? Well, hopefully this is where we all are today. He says, for I know whom I have believed. You see that? He knows the Lord and he knows this is the truth. And am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. He's saying what God has promised to do in this matter, I am fully persuaded he's going to do. Right? I commit, committing to him is, no, is kind of like the notion of saying, I see what's declared in the word of God. He is the Savior. He's the one who saves. I have no doubt that he's going to get the job done, and that's where we need to stand on it. Let me tell you something. There's a lot of ministers in this world who are out there convincing you because they are very charming people. They're entertaining. They're funny. They're, uh, they, they can really spin a good yarn. They can spellbind an audience. And there's a lot of people who get drawn into thinking, like, in some sense, my salvation is tied to this very charismatic person. That's a terrible place to be. And it's not what a gospel minister should be doing. Your salvation should be standing upon the person and work of Jesus Christ and understanding what Christ has done and knowing Christ got the job done, not, wow, I got a part of this movement and look at all these people and look at this really great charismatic person up there. He must have the keys to the kingdom and now I'm getting into heaven because I'm part of this great movement here. That's not how it works. Uh, we kind of have to disappear. And in some sense, a gospel minister's job is kind of like a magic act. I should be disappearing in front of you if I'm doing my job, and I should be exalting Jesus Christ to such a level that we're all manifestly adoring His glory and His perfection and not mine. So Paul was persuaded that Jesus Christ was going to deliver all His people, and that's what he was teaching, and that is what we are teaching, and I pray what we will continue to teach henceforth. Verse 13, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me, in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Preach what I preached. If you took a pie chart of Christianity, there's a lot of people on that chart, maybe more than 50% of them, there's a lot of people on that chart who would even say, we're not even really sure that what Paul said is really proper Christianity. See what they did there? They just said, well, we need to listen to what, let's think about what Jesus said. And we think Paul said things that were contrary to Jesus. So we shouldn't listen that much to Paul. And we should focus more on what they then project onto who Jesus was. And um, they kind of split people's attentions then. They, they plant a seed in the minds of people that 
Eh, Paul's not really very trustworthy. You can't trust Paul. Paul didn't come along till later. See, he wasn't there in Jesus' ministry like the rest of the disciples. He came along, it wasn't until the Damascus Road that he came along and started preaching all this stuff. See, he came along and kind of corrupted Christianity. Now, this idea is going on within the domain of Christianity today. There are people questioning Paul. Um, so, they come to verse 13 and they say, well, yeah, sure, Paul wants you to preach what he preached. But what Paul didn't tell you is that he was over here twisting and contorting things that are different from what Jesus said. That is not the Christian faith. Paul wrote the majority of the New Testament. He was inspired of God of these things, and Paul was right to teach the grace of Christ. So be wary of that technique that is out there. By the way, it says, Hold fast the form of sound words which thou hast heard of me in faith and love which is in Christ Jesus. Some people may say that teaching election and predestination is not, well, it doesn't sound very loving. That just doesn't sound very loving to me. But I'm going to submit to you that that truth is so evidently taught in the Bible that any minister who knows that and is standing before you and trying to deny it or avoid teaching it is not doing so in faith and in love. That is not a faithful and loving minister who would stand up and try to obscure the notion of election and predestination before you because it's in the Word of God and it's absolutely undeniable. Many of your friends and neighbors are not even aware of that because the assemblies that they've been in for so long, they never actually hit any of those verses. They just avoid them altogether. I can't tell you how many people I have had conversations with where I've said, well, have you, look at Romans 9. Right? Look at what's said in um, Exodus chapter 33. There's places in the Bible that clearly teach this idea that God is doing the choosing and the saving. And I've had some of these people come back to me and say, I have been in the church for 20 years. I've never heard that verse before. Right? So it's important that we stick to these sound words that Paul was teaching. It has to do with the grace of God and salvation, election, predestination, all those truths that we hold dear and are comforted by. And that this is a faithful and loving declaration. It's not unloving to tell people what the Word of God says. Irrespective of the contempt that might be heaped upon it by people who are critics of that idea. It's a loving thing to tell people what the Word of God says and try to instruct them in it. Verse 14. That good thing which is committed unto thee keep by the Holy Ghost which dwelleth in us. Here again, this gospel truth that Paul has been given, you stick to this. You know, one of the, the problems that arises in the church and over many years has resulted in all of the denominationalism that is out there is that... Um, Men have decided the good thing which was originally committed to the church, yeah, it may be good, it's just not good enough. We need some additional things appended to the church. Maybe there's some other things that we need to append to the church. And maybe as we append these things, the church can be this thing that's getting better and better and better. In other words, we had a, the church was kind of established here on earth as a prototype. 
it's kind of got the pieces roughly put together, and God left it to us in that state, and that we are over time and over the centuries supposed to be constantly improving and coming out with version 2.0 and version 3.0, and here's the next year model, and here's the newest and latest and greatest, and improving the church as we go on. Many Christian denominations literally believe that doctrine. But that is not what the Bible teaches. The Bible teaches that what we have in the Word of God truly furnishes us unto every good work. We have the complete written Word of God. We have the things we need to be truly furnished. And that's what we need. The church was a fully formed uh, religious institution, if you will, of the Lord Jesus Christ's design at the time of its establishment. And we don't have to be coming in and trying to innovate we can stick with the good thing we've been left with instead of trying to constantly improve upon it. Now what you'll find over time is that many denominations, if you trace their heritage back enough, what you'll find is that at some point they were much closer to the truth than they are today. It may take hundreds of years or thousands of years to get there, but if you look, watch their bloodline you can actually see their doctrine drift over time. And the summary of that is that what they've done is they took a previous thing that they understood, that good thing, and they've said, that's eh, good, but it, there's something better. We could do something better. If we modified this doctrine or that doctrine, you know what, My, uh, I have a cousin that would come to church if they, if they just didn't hit that, that election and predestination thing so much. He's really bothered by that. Well, there's one you could get in the church. Well, you know, by the way, if you don't understand that salvation is a finished work and Christ has gotten the job done for His elect, and your doctrine previously has now departed and said, well, we've got to get them to do something to get them saved. Now you have a justification for modifying your practice so that you could at least get them in the door. Because if you get them in the door, maybe you could get them to do the thing that could get them eternally saved. You see, it becomes this, it's like a domino effect, right? You tweak one thing, you get a little bit out of level, and it's, it increases to more and more unlevelness, right? And one thing piles upon the other. If you have a bad doctrine of salvation, that starts leading into all sorts of bad ministry practices. It says, well, we've got to get them in here if we're ever going to get them to heaven. That's why I said, you know, the, there was that old sign in Hot Springs that my grandmother thought was hysterically funny. Um, there was, a, there was a place over there, a beer joint, that had a sign that said, Free Beer Tomorrow. And we'd go over there and visit Hot Springs. We'd drive by this place, and we were over there going to the promenade or whatever. And she'd always point that sign out and chuckle, because it had been up there for 30 years or something, you know. It's like, yeah, free beer tomorrow. Well, tomorrow's always a day away, right? So it never comes around. But I've made the joke before that if you wanted to fill this church out, I guarantee you, you could tap a keg in the basement every Sunday and let everybody know it. And this church would be full. You'd be seeing people hadn't darkened the door of a church in a long time showing up here for free beer on Sunday. Now that's a very crass example, right? But I think it's undeniable that you would bring a lot of people in with a free beer offer. And that's essentially what Christianity has done in tiny increments over time, right? It's not the free beer sign. It's just, let's, let's ignore this one doctrine. Let's ignore this one truth. People are offended by that. They find that troubling. They find that problematic. If we just tone that down, maybe we get a few more in here, right? Well, 
So this doctrinal house that we have to, you know, this foundation that we have to build upon has got to be solid and level all the way across or we're going to have structural problems in the church. And that's really what's happened that's created all this denominationalism is that people have decided we're going to make these little tweaks, these little tweaks, they add up over time to where now many churches uh, compared to our doctrine and even other churches' doctrines, they're very far off the mark from one another. And it's because they've made these little, little modifications over time because they weren't quite as uh, keen on embracing the good thing that was given to them and felt like they could improve it or make it better. Verse 15, <coughs> This thou knowest, that all they which are in Asia be turned away from me, of whom are uh, Fragilis and Hermogenes. The Lord give mercy unto the house of Onesiphorus, for he oft refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. Well, here's a, here's a warning thing here. It's not going to be all rosy if you're in the realm, if you're working in the realm of gospel ministry, whether as a minister like Timothy here, or whether you're just out there trying to represent the gospel in your life before your friends and family, there's going to be times when um, you're going to find that people oppose you. Um, by the way, these people uh, who turned away from these were fellow Christians, right? These were Christian converts who were like, I don't, I don't know, I'm kind of turning away from Paul. Paul now has gotten in trouble with the law. Uh, well, maybe we ought to distance ourselves from Paul a little bit. We don't want the Roman government coming down on us the way they're coming down on Paul. And you may find that uh, that happens within among God's people as well. I'm sure it was very uh, distressing to Paul, but it made him all the more appreciative of those like Onesiphorus who uh, refreshed him and was not ashamed of this notion. There may be some contempt that's heaped upon gospel ministers, and they are particularly appreciative in those circumstances of those who are not ashamed of the testimony that they're teaching and are willing to support them in that Verse 17, but when he was in Rome, he sought me out very diligently and found me. I don't know how many of you ever thought about this, but I've often thought how easy it is to find somebody today. You think about that? I mean, it's easier today than it's ever been. With your phones, you can send somebody your geographic location and they can it'll lead them right to you, you know. Um, those types of things. Even before that, before there were phones and everything, people, there's phone books that publish people's addresses. We have a national address system. We have phone numbers that you can look up. You can find people pretty easily in this day and age. And that may uh, create in our minds an idea that minimizes what this disciple had to do to find Paul. You know what I mean? Like Paul's in a prison in Rome. Okay, well, I got to get to Rome. And getting there is not just buying an airplane ticket and you're there in a couple hours. No, you got to go through all the difficulty of getting there, which would have taken weeks, no doubt. And then when you're there, you got to start asking questions. You know, you go to one place, well, we think he, and they don't, who knows if they have the right records. Well, we know he was arrested in Rome, but we don't know. We got 15 jails here in Rome. We don't know which one he's in. Oh, we'll just call one of the other. No, they don't have any phones. They don't have. Do you have duplicate records in every? No, you don't have any of that. I mean, there's a labor. You can see why Paul would be appreciative of this. Now, if I was in trouble and y'all y'all had to find me, I would be appreciative of it, but not to, nearly to the level 
of what Paul must have been for this disciple. You see what I'm saying? Because I recognize the level of effort that you would have to go through is not even on the realm of comparison with what this person had to do to go find Paul in a prison in Rome. It's a big deal. Um, so Paul was appreciative of that. And I think that's a really good example um, of someone who was willing to refresh the minister or fellow worker in the gospel, that they would go to that level of trouble to do it. It's, it's quite incredible, and I'm sure Paul recognized that. Um, Paul says, The Lord granted to him that he may find mercy of the Lord in that day. And in how many things he ministered unto me at Ephesus, thou knowest very well. So Paul was incredibly appreciative of this, and I am uh, appreciative, as I think all gospel ministers are, of the support you all give me. And um, it's, it's humbling to me to think that you would do that. Uh, cover a few more verses here, and then we'll, we'll find a place to stop here. Starting in chapter 2, uh, Thou therefore, my son, be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus. You've got to stand fast in this truth that we know. Don't just say, well, I'm going to be strong in myself and I'll do whatever I need to do to build up the size of the audience here. But we'll be strong in the grace that is in Christ Jesus and in that message that we preach of grace. And the things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, the same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. Now where in that sentence do you find any opportunity to modify the doctrine of the church? I'm going to submit that many Christian denominations, through their practice and honestly through their own admission over time, would openly admit that what they did was they say, okay, we heard what Paul said, but we're going to pass something a little different down. We're going to commit some different things because we see that it might be profitable for the church. It might be better for the church. We might have better attendance if we uh, did not commit those things to faithful men. And that's kind of what's happened over time. There is no opportunity in verse 2 here to start modifying the doctrine of the church. It's codified in the Bible. Paul taught it. It's the grace of Christ. That's, all, that's the only gospel there is, the only thing that's on the level, and anything else is crooked. We don't have the opportunity to change it, and so there, we need to have a continuous line of teaching the same truth of the grace of Christ throughout all ages, and that's an important mission of the church. Thou therefore endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. I've mentioned before that I used to enjoy as a child when church we attended we would sing Onward Christian Soldiers and I found that rousing tune, this imagery of being a soldier and being in a spiritual warfare. And this is really the matter of gospel warfare. The Bible uses this type of imagery to help you think about the nature of the battle that you're in. You're in a spiritual battle, and there's a gospel warfare going on in this world, and you're going to have to endure some hardness in the matter. You're going to have to endure the unkind comments that are made by others, whether they are the hostile and irreligious, the atheist, who's going to say the whole thing is just nonsense, 
or whether it is your Christian friends and neighbors who believe that your doctrine is nonsense. Uh, there's going to be some hardness that you have to endure, and it comes with the territory. That is why it's referred to as a warfare and why you're called a soldier. It's not a picnic, okay? Uh, we had a picnic last week. It was great. But that is not a comprehensive picture of the Christian life. That's kind of like the best of times sort of situation, but there's the best of times and the worst of times. And there's times when things don't go so well, and many aspects of your Christian life are not going to feel like you're at a picnic. They're going to feel like you're part of a war encampment. So you have to be prepared for that. Endure hardness as a good soldier of Jesus Christ. Part of that is knowing hardness will come. There will be some difficult things that you'll have to deal with, and we are called upon to endure them, not to buckle under them, not to resort to sheer pragmatism because, well, if I just gave up on this doctrine or that practice of the church and uh, modified it a little bit, then it would go easier on me and I wouldn't have to endure this hardness. I'll give you an example of one that, that uh, gets people uh, animated. I've seen them animated over it in the past. In my ordination, uh, Elder Freddie Bowen asked me, would you substitute grape juice for wine in, um, in the communion service? And I said, no, I wouldn't. Many churches have, have gone down that road, and there's, a, there's kind of a justification for it. I'll give you the justification. I, I, it's pragmatism. Uh, I think it's faithlessness. Faithless pragmatism is what I honestly believe it is. The storyline goes something like this. Uh, well, my grandfather was uh, an alcoholic, and he just struggled with demon alcohol for many, many, many years. And then he finally got, got his life right, and he joined the church, and now he's in the church. And if that alcohol were to touch his lips in the communion service, you would send him off on an alcoholic bender and it would wreck his Christian faith and his fellowship within the church. Therefore, we ought to serve grape juice in the communion service. Now that's, that's a very seductive idea, particularly in a society that has come to regard alcoholism, if, if we'll call it that, as the term is commonly used, as a sickness rather than a sin, a sinful proclivity. It also calls into question the Lord's design for the communion service. It's, it's as if we're saying, well, you know, if Jesus had really been thinking rightly on that day, He would have thought to make it grape juice or maybe just orange juice instead of wine in the communion service. We don't have the ability to make that change. And I don't believe that testimony, by the way, this thing that that's going to send somebody off on a bench. I just don't believe it. Even if it's true, we don't have the ability to change what's going on in the communion service. Now you say, well, that seems like a very small thing. They all seem like small things. That's the way it starts. It's always a small thing. It's just a little small thing. We'll just make this little change here. Before long, you're deciding things like, well, one of the most common things today is church membership is an old-fashioned notion. 
it's an impediment to people being involved in the church. We ought to just let them come in and come and go as they please, and they can come and not come, and there's no association, there's no commitment to the church, there's no notion of who's a member and who's not. And this whole thing of, you know, well, people get hung up on baptism. I don't know. I don't know. That's, that's something I got to do. Well, can't I just come? Yeah. There's, that, that's something that people get hung up on. But we can't change the fact that the, the Lord's church says this is something you're supposed to do, and that's how you're supposed to handle it. We don't just modify that. So all of these things, in any instance where they get changed, it's almost always something that seems pretty small. And there's some sort of rationalization for it that seems good. We ought to just give up on that. Wouldn't we have more people here if we just said there's no notion of membership whatsoever? There's no level of commitment that anyone needs to make to the body or to, to one another. You know, the, the, the church is described as a body. If someone, uh, you know, in the in Middle Ages when people were being punished, they would draw and quarter people, which was where they'd pull you apart, basically. Use horses to pull your body apart. That's a very uh, effective means of rendering the body totally unusable, right? It's a horrible, torturous thing. And yet, there's people in Christianity today who would say, you don't have to have the body be a cohesive thing. It can just be different parts that are just lying around all over the place. One day an arm shows up, the next day a foot shows up. There's no cohesiveness to it. There's no cooperation within the body. You see, it doesn't work. What you have in that instance is a cadaver. It's not a functioning body. And God's people are supposed to come together as a body, and that is the church. And it involves things like membership and things like baptism and all those sorts of commitments. So uh, forgive me for running that rabbit trail, but it's important that these doctrines, things that may seem like small departures and may have some sort of justification associated with them, we're not at liberty to change those things, and we need to stick to the truths that Paul originally taught. He goes on to say this, uh, No man that warreth entangleth himself with the affairs of this life, that he may please him who hath chosen him to be a soldier. <coughs> we need to be aware of the entanglements of this world and how they influence us. It's those sorts of entanglements that might incline you to want to make these little tweaks and changes here because you think it might improve attendance or participation. But we need to be aware of how we become entangled in those things and avoid those entanglements. And if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned except he strive lawfully. Like, think about this. The, the principles and practices of the church are like those are the rules of the game. You're playing the game of church, if you'll let me use this metaphor. You're playing the game of church and it has certain rules. You can't just in the middle of the game start saying, you know, what if you're playing Monopoly with somebody one day and you're way behind and, and you just say, well, I rolled the dice and I really needed to land on you know, Parkway Place. But I didn't roll the number to get me on Parkway Place, but I'm just gonna move there anyway. Like anybody playing a game like that, where you just say you're going to move wherever you want to, it doesn't matter what the dice were, and you, you, oh, I'm going to draw a card, I'm going to get a get out of jail free card right now, 
even though it's not my turn to draw a card. I'm just going to start. And you know what? I'm going to pull $1,000 out of the bank over here and put it in my stack. Anybody playing a simple board game like that is going to be like, dude, that doesn't work. You can't do that. That's not the game. You're not playing the game properly. This is not Monopoly anymore. This is just a free-for-all. It's just you're going to do whatever you want to do. That's what people are doing in the Lord's church today. They're saying, we don't really recognize the rules that are established in the Word of God, the principles and practices of the church, right? Doesn't matter. We're just going to set up, we're going to do the rules however we want to do the rules. Well, there's a point at which when you're doing, if you're doing that in Monopoly, someone's going to stand up and say, this is not Monopoly anymore. What you're doing is outrageous. It's just willy-nilly. It's a free-for-all. It's not Monopoly. Likewise, when you're doing that in the church, it's not the church anymore, right? It may have church on the sign. It may have a big cross and lots of people showing up. But if you're not doing the things that were in the rule book for the game of church, you're no longer playing the game of church, okay? Church is no game. You see what I'm saying? You can, we don't have the ability to just change these things willy-nilly. And in this sense, he says, if a man also strive for masteries, yet is he not crowned, except he strive lawfully. Well, I know this fellow over here, he's got a church that's got 5,000 people in it. They got all these people showing up. They had to build a gigantic parking lot. And look at all this stuff that's going over here. Yeah, but he's not playing by the rules. You see what I'm saying? He's set up a whole new board and a whole new game. He's come up with all the rules he wants, and it's showing success. But he's not going to be crowned for that because he's not striving for it lawfully. You see what I'm saying? He's doing this on the basis of a totally new set of rules that have nothing to do with the rules of the church and how it's to be run in the Word of God. <clears throat> this church may be small. Um, it may continue to be small. It may be large at some point. I don't know. But none of that matters if we're not striving for this lawfully. If we're not actually trying to uphold what the church is doing, we're just creating a social organization and doing something else. Well, I, I have no doubt we could do that and have more numbers in here. There's no doubt in my mind. I've got a background in marketing. Trust me, I could come up with a marketing plan that would fill the pews of this church. The problem is I wouldn't be striving for it lawfully. I would be building some other type of movement, and what we've got to do is uphold the practices of the church. Verse 6, The husband, husbandman that laboreth must be partaker of the fruits. Consider what I say, and the Lord give thee understanding in all these things. In other words, it's, it's totally... Uh, right that the minister is paid and is compensated for what he does. He should be a partaker of the fruit that's brought in here in worship to God, and that's, there's no, absolutely nothing wrong with that. That's how it should be. By the way, that's part of the rules, right? That's part of the rules for how it should work. Verse 8, Remember that Christ Jesus of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. Well, there's another one of those principles that people played around with. Look, in the sophisticated modern world, you can't have a resurrected Jesus Christ and expect sophisticated, modern, educated people to show up at your church. If you'll just shave off the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you'll get a lot more of the wise and prudent coming into your church. 
the college professors and those, the leaders of industry and those people who are the big leaders of society who think that a risen Savior is ludicrous and doesn't comport or con, uh, conform to the notion of science as we understand it in our day, well, those people might be willing to join your social organization. That's fine, but you haven't strived for it lawfully, and now you don't have the church anymore. You're not playing the right game anymore. You're playing a totally different game. And Paul is saying, remember that Christ Jesus of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel. If you don't have the resurrection of Jesus Christ, you don't have a gospel. You may have something you call a gospel, but it's not the gospel. Paul says it's another gospel. That's your Galatians 6 chapter, or Galatians uh, 1.6. That's your homework. Read Galatians 1 this week. This notion of the resurrection is central to the, the doctrine of the church, and Paul doesn't shy away from it. He says it repeatedly in many places in the Scriptures. But that's one of the, one of the things that people shave off, right? Oh, well, that's, you must be people who believe in miracles. Well, we're too scientific and sophisticated to believe in miracles anymore. If you get rid of, rid of that resurrected Jesus Christ, I might be willing to join your church. You wouldn't be a bunch of hillbilly idiots who believe in miracles. Well, guess what? God is a supernatural spirit. He has dominion over the things of nature. The Bible's testimony is that He has performed many miracles, and I believe it. And one of them is the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and that is what your hope is based upon. That, that makes me a hillbilly idiot, an ignoramus. They, they call them... Um, Unlearned men is how they referred to the, uh, the disciples when they were preaching there at the temple. Ignorant and unlearned men, I think is the terminology that was used. The, the, the Greek term underneath that, I don't go into Greek too much, but the word is idiotes. You, you get the sense of what that word means? Idiots. Well, the wise and prudent are going to regard what we believe as idiotic. But it's the truth of the Word of God nevertheless, and the resurrection of Jesus Christ is a non-negotiable. For this matter, he says, wherein I suffer trouble as an evildoer, even unto bonds, but the Word of God is not bound. Paul suffered for this. And if you represent this truth in our world, you're going to find some suffering associated with it as well. But God's true. God's right about it, whether anyone else recognizes it. And we should be willing to stand on it unashamed. So, and then he closes with this. Maybe we'll stop here in verse 10. Therefore, I endure all things. This is all the stuff he's having to deal with. I'm willing to put up with this, this terrible situation. I'm in prison. People tell me I'm an idiot. They think that, you know, I'm teaching some nonsense here. And um, I'm willing to put up with all that. For the elect's sakes. He's talking about the family of God. I'm willing to endure this for God's people because he realizes it's important for God's people to know this. It's important enough that me suffering is a, a certainly worthwhile price to pay because they need to know this. Their lives are going to benefit tremendously by knowing this truth. Uh, he endures all things for the elect's sake that they may also obtain... Now wait, they're going to, as a result of him enduring this, there's something additional they're going to obtain. Right? 
that they may also obtain the salvation which is Christ, which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. He's talking about letting these people know the things he said back in verses 9 and 10 and again in the second chapter and in verse 8. Letting them know the reality of what's been declared in the gospel. It's a worthwhile cause. There's a lot of God's people in this world. I believe this very strongly. And, and I think most Old Baptists kind of think along these lines. You hear people say, well, I know that this person, I for, this person over here, I know they've got to be a child of God. They've got love in their heart, and I know they love the Lord. They don't understand certain things, but I, I just feel confident that this person is a child of God. Um, I hear that a lot among our people, and I think it's probably right in a lot of instances. Um, however, we should not use that as an excuse to not share the truth with these people, because what we've done when we've said that, if you're willing to make that declaration, what you've really said is this, I believe that person has the ears to hear. And the question then becomes, have you ever given them anything to hear? Are you perfectly content with just letting them sit there in their ignorance? Paul was convinced that all the elect are going to live in glory. He could have sat down and done nothing in terms of gospel ministry, and all the elect are going to live in glory with God based on what Christ did. That means that his entire ministry was in the realm of conditional time salvation. He's out there in the realm of trying to teach God's people the truth so that they can live in the comfort of it, understand the instruction that accompanies it, and be part of the Lord's New Testament church. I pray that's a blessing to you, and I pray that in the coming weeks as we as we ask God to give us opportunities to share those things, that you would think about any of those in your mind who you say, I know that person's a child of God. I, they, they don't understand certain things. There's certain aspects of the Christian faith that they don't understand. That you think a little differently about those folks and say, you know what? Next time I'm talking to those people and I realize that, let me give them something to think about. If they've got the ears to hear, let's make sure they hear something. Thank you for listening to SuccessfulSavior.org the ministry of Harmony Primitive Baptist Church. This has been Elder Dan Sammons preaching in one of our regular meetings. Come and join us as we worship God in the simplicity of Christ every Sunday morning at 416 North Hall Street in Donaldson, Arkansas. At Harmony, we don't have many things you'll find in the popular churches of our day, but we do have a successful Savior. We invite you to come and see.